Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Inyash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. First half of Chapter 7, Reciprocation. Petunia Evans Varys's lips were trembling, and her eyes were tearing up as Harry hugged her midsection on Platform 9 of the King's Cross Station. Are you sure you don't want me to come with you, Harry? Harry glanced over to his father, Michael Varys Evans, who was looking stereotypically stern but proud, and then back to his mother, who really did look rather... uncomposed. Mom, I know you don't like the wizarding world very much. You don't have to come with. I mean it. Petunia winced. Harry, you shouldn't worry about me. I'm your mother, and if you need someone with you... Mum, I'm going to be on my own at Hogwarts for months and months. If I can't manage a train platform alone, better to find out sooner rather than later so we can abort. He lowered his voice to a whisper. Besides, Mum, they all love me over there. If I have any problems, all I need to do is take off my sweatband. Harry tapped the exercise band covering his scar. And I'll have way more help than I can handle. Oh, Harry... She knelt down and hugged him hard, face to face, their cheeks resting against each other. Harry could feel her ragged breathing, and then he heard a muffled sob escape. Harry, I do love you. Always remember that. It's like she's afraid she'll never see me again. The thought popped into Harry's head. He knew the thought was true, but he didn't know why Mum was so afraid. So he made a guess. Mum, you know that I'm not going to turn into your sister just because I'm learning magic, right? I'll do any magic you ask for. If I can, I mean. Or if you want me not to use any magic around the house, I'll do that too. I promise I'll never let magic come between us. A tight hug cut off his words. You have a good heart. His mother whispered into his ear. A very good heart, my son. Harry choked up himself a little, then... His mother released him and stood up. She took a handkerchief out of her handbag and with a trembling hand dabbed at the running makeup around her eyes. There were no questions about his father accompanying him to the magical side of King's Cross Station. Dad had trouble just looking at Harry's trunk directly. Magic ran in families and Michael Varys Evans couldn't even walk. So instead, his father just cleared his throat. <clears throat> Good luck at school, Harry. Do you think I bought you enough books? Harry had explained to his father about how he thought this might be his big chance to do something really revolutionary and important. And Professor Varys Evans had nodded and dumped his extremely busy schedule for two solid days in order to go on the greatest second-hand bookshop raid ever, which had covered four cities and produced 30 boxes of science books now sitting in the cavern level of Harry's trunk. Most of the books had gone for a pound or two, but some of them definitely hadn't like the very latest Handbook of Chemistry and Physics, or the complete 1972 set of the Encyclopedia Britannica. His father had tried to block Harry off from seeing the till displays, but Harry figured his father must have spent at least a thousand pounds. Harry had said to his father that he would pay him back as soon as he figured out how to convert wizarding gold into muggle money, and his father had told him to go jump in a lake. And then his father had asked him, Do you think I bought you enough books? It was quite clear what answer Dad wanted to hear. Harry's throat was hoarse for some reason. 
You can never have enough books. He recited the Varus family motto, and his father knelt down and gave him a quick, firm embrace. But you certainly tried, Harry said, and felt himself choking up again. It was a really, really, really good try. His dad straightened. So, do you see a platform nine and three quarters? King's Cross Station was huge and busy, with walls and floors paved with ordinary dirt-stained tiles. It was full of ordinary people hurrying about their ordinary business, having ordinary conversations which generated lots and lots of ordinary noise. King's Cross Station had a Platform 9, which they were standing on, and a Platform 10, right nearby, but there was nothing between Platform 9 and Platform 10 except a thin, unpromising barrier wall. A great skylight overhead let in plenty of light to illuminate the total lack whatsoever of any Platform 9 and 3 quarters. Harry stared around until his eyes watered, thinking, Come on, Mage Sight. Come on, Mage Sight. But absolutely nothing appeared to him. He thought about taking out his wand and waving it, but Professor McGonagall had warned him against using his wand. Plus, if there was another shower of multicolored sparks, that might lead to being arrested for setting off fireworks inside a train station. And that was assuming his wand didn't decide to do something else, like blowing up all of King's Cross. Harry had only lightly skimmed his school books, though that skim was quite bizarre enough, in a very quick effort to determine what sort of science books to buy over the next 48 hours. Well, he had, Harry glanced at his watch, one whole hour to figure it out, since he was supposed to be on the train at 11. Maybe this was the equivalent of an IQ test and the stupid kids couldn't become wizards, and the amount of extra time you gave yourself would determine your conscientiousness, which was the second most important factor in scholarly success. I'll figure it out, Harry said to his waiting parents. It's probably some sort of test thingy. His father frowned. Hmm. Maybe look for a trail of mixed footprints on the ground, leading somewhere that doesn't seem to make sense. Dad! Stop that! I haven't even tried to figure it out on my own! It was a very good suggestion, too, which was worse. Sorry. His father apologized. Uh... Harry's mother said. I don't think they would do that to a student, do you? Are you sure Professor McGonagall didn't tell you anything? Maybe she was distracted. Harry said without thinking. Harry! hissed his father and mother in unison. What did you do? I, um... Harry swallowed. Look, we don't have time for this now. Harry? I mean it! We don't have time for this now! Because it's a really long story, and I've got to figure out how to get to school! His mother had a hand over her face. How bad was it? I, uh... I can't talk about it for reasons of national security. About half as bad as the incident with the science project? Harry! I... Uh, oh, look, there's some people with an owl! I'll go ask them how to get in. And Harry ran away from his parents toward the family of fiery redheads, his trunk automatically slithering behind him. The plump woman looked at him as he arrived. Hello, dear. First time at Hogwarts. Ron's new, too. And then she peered closely at him. Harry Potter? Four boys and a red-headed girl and an owl all swung around and then froze in place. Oh, come on! Harry protested. He'd been planning to go as Harry Varus at least until he got to Hogwarts. 
I bought a sweatband and everything. How come you know who I am? Yes? Harry's father said, coming up behind him with long, easy strides. How do you know who he is? His voice indicated a certain dread. Your picture was in the newspapers, said one of the two identical-looking twins. Harry! Dad, it's not like that. It's because I defeated the Dark Lord you-know-who when I was one year old. What? Mum can explain. What? Uh, Michael, dear, there are certain things I thought it would be best not to bother you with until now. Excuse me, Harry said to the red-headed family who were all staring at him. But it would be quite extremely helpful if you could tell me how to get to platform nine and three quarters right now. Ah, said the woman. She raised a hand and pointed at the wall between platforms. Just walk straight at the barrier between platforms nine and ten. Don't stop and don't be scared you'll crash into it. That's very important. Best do it at a bit of a run if you're nervous. And whatever you do, don't think of an elephant. George! Ignore him, Harry dear. There's no reason not to think of an elephant. I'm Fred, Mum, not George. Thanks! Harry said and took off at a run toward the barrier. Wait a minute. It wouldn't work unless he believed in it? It was at times like this that Harry hated his mind for actually working fast enough to realize that this was a case where resonant doubt applied. That is, if he'd started out thinking that he would go through the barrier, he'd have been fine. Only now he was worried about whether he sufficiently believed he'd go through the barrier, which meant that he actually was worried about crashing into it. Harry! Get back here, you have some explaining to do! Harry shut his eyes and ignored everything he knew about justified credibility and just tried to believe really hard that he'd go through the barrier and... The sounds around him changed. Harry opened his eyes and stumbled to a halt, feeling vaguely dirtied by having made a deliberate effort to believe something. He was standing in a bright, open-air platform next to a single huge train, 14 long carriages headed up by a massive scarlet metal steam engine with a tall chimney that promised death to air quality. The platform was already lightly crowded, even though Harry was a full hour early. Dozens of children and their parents swarmed around benches, tables, and various hawkers and stalls. It went entirely without saying that there was no such place in King's Cross Station and no room to hide it. Okay, so either A. I just teleported somewhere else entirely, B. They can fold space like no one's business, or C. They are simply ignoring all the rules. There was a slithering sound behind him, and Harry turned around to observe that his trunk had indeed followed him on its small clawed tentacles. Apparently, for magical purposes, his luggage had also managed to believe with sufficient strength to pass through the barrier. That was actually a little disturbing when Harry started thinking about it. A moment later, the youngest-looking red-haired boy came through the iron archway. Iron archway? At a run, pulling his trunk behind him on a lead and nearly crashing into Harry. Harry, feeling stupid for having stayed around, quickly began moving away from the landing area and the red-haired boy followed him, yanking hard on his trunk's lead in order to keep up. A moment later, a white owl fluttered through the archway and came to rest on the boy's shoulder. Cor, said the red-haired boy. Are you really Harry Potter? Not this again. 
I have no logical way of knowing that for certain. My parents raised me to believe that my name was Harry James Potter Evans Varus, and many people here have told me that I look like my parents. I mean, my other parents. But... Harry frowned, realizing... For all I know, there could easily be spells to polymorph a child into a specified appearance. Uh, what, mate? Not headed for Ravenclaw, I take it. Yes, I'm Harry Potter. I'm Ron Weasley, said the tall, skinny, freckled, long-nosed kid and stuck out a hand, which Harry politely shook as they walked. The howl gave Harry an oddly measured and courteous hoot. Actually, more of an <coughs> sound which surprised Harry. At this point, Harry realized the potential for imminent catastrophe. Just a second, he said to Ron and opened one of the drawers of his trunk, the one that, if he recalled correctly, was for winter clothes. It was, and then he found the lightest scarf he owned underneath his winter coat. Harry took off his sweatband and just as quickly unfolded the scarf and tied it around his face. It was a little hot, especially in the summer, but Harry could live with that. Then he shut the drawer and pulled out another drawer and drew forth black wizarding robes, which he shrugged over his head now that he was out of muggle territory. There, Harry said. The sound came out slightly muffled through the scarf over his face. He turned to Ron. How do I look? Stupid, I know, but am I identifiable as Harry Potter? Uh, Ron said. He closed his mouth, which had been open. Not really, Harry. Very good. However, so as to not obviate the point of this whole exercise, you will henceforth address me as... Varus might not work anymore. Mr. Spoo. Okay, Harry, Ron said uncertainly. The force is not particularly strong with this one. Call me Mr. Spoo. Okay, Mr. Spoo, Ron stopped. I can't do that. It makes me feel stupid. That's not just a feeling. Okay, you pick a name. Mr. Cannon, Ron said at once. For the Chudley Cannons. Ah. Harry knew he was going to terribly regret asking this. Who or what are the Chudley Cannons? Who are the Chudley Cannons? Only the most brilliant team in the whole history of Quidditch. Sure, they finished at the bottom of the league last year, but... What's Quidditch? Asking this was also a mistake. So let me get this straight, Harry said as it seemed that Ron's explanation, with associated hand gestures, was winding down. Catching the snitch is worth 150 points? Yeah. How many 10-point goals does one side usually score, not counting the snitch? Um, maybe 15 or 20 in professional games. That's just wrong. That violates every possible rule of game design. Look, the rest of the game sounds like it might make sense. Sort of. For a sport, I mean. But you're basically saying that catching the snitch overwhelms almost any ordinary point spread. The two seekers are up there, flying around, looking for the snitch, and usually not interacting with anyone else. Spotting the snitch first is going to be mostly luck. It's not luck protested Ron. You've got to keep your eyes moving in the right pattern. It's not interactive. There's no back and forth with the other players, and how much fun is it to watch someone incredibly good at moving their eyes? 
And then, whichever seeker gets lucky swoops in and grabs the snitch and makes everyone else's work moot. It's like someone took a real game and grafted on this pointless extra position so that you could be the most important player without needing to really get involved or learn the rest of it. Who was the first seeker? The king's idiot son who wanted to play Quidditch but couldn't understand the rules? Actually, now that Harry thought about it, that seemed like a surprisingly good hypothesis. Put him on a broomstick and tell him to catch the shiny thing. Ron's face pulled into a scowl. If you don't like Quidditch, you don't have to make fun of it. If you can't criticize, you can't optimize. I'm suggesting how to improve the game. And it's very simple. Get rid of the snitch. They won't change the game just because you say so. I am the boy who lived, you know. People will listen to me. And maybe if I can persuade them to change the game at Hogwarts, the innovation will spread. A look of absolute horror was spreading over Ron's face. But, but if you get rid of the snitch, how will anyone know when the game ends? By a clock. It would be a lot fairer than having the game sometimes end after 10 minutes and sometimes not end for hours. And the schedule would be a lot more predictable for the spectators, too. Harry sighed. Oh, stop giving me that look of absolute horror. I probably won't actually take the time to destroy this pathetic excuse for a national sport and remake it stronger and smarter in my own image. I've got way, way, way more important stuff to worry about. Harry looked thoughtful. Then again, it wouldn't take much time to write up the 95 theses of the Snitchless Reformation and nail it to a church door. Potter, drawled a young boy's voice. What is that on your face? And what is standing next to you? Ron's look of horror was replaced by utter hatred. You. Harry turned his head, and indeed it was Draco Malfoy who might have been forced to wear standard school robes, but was making up for that with a trunk looking at least as magical and far more elegant than Harry's own, decorated in silver and emeralds and bearing what Harry guessed to be the Malfoy family crest, a beautiful fanged serpent over crossed ivory wands. Draco, Harry said. Er, or Malfoy if you prefer, though that kind of sounds like Lucius to me. I'm glad to see you're doing so well after, um, our last meeting. This is Ron Weasley, and I'm trying to go incognito, so call me... eh... Harry looked down at his robes. Mr. Black. Harry, hissed Ron. You can't use that name. Harry blinked. Why not? It sounded nicely dark, like an international man of mystery. I'd say it's a fine name, said Draco, but it belongs to the noble and most ancient house of Black. I'll call you Mr. Silver. You get away from... from Mr. Gold, Ron said coldly and took a forward step. He doesn't need to talk to the likes of you. Harry raised a placating hand. I'll go by Mr. Bronze. Thanks for the naming schema. And Ron, um... Harry struggled to find a way to say this. I'm glad you're so... enthusiastic about protecting me, but I don't particularly mind talking to Draco. This was apparently the last straw for Ron, who spun on Harry with eyes now aflame with outrage. What? Do you know who this is? Yes, Ron. You may remember that I called him Draco without him needing to introduce himself. Draco sniggered. 
Then his eyes lit on the white owl on Ron's shoulder. Oh, what's this? Draco said in a drawl rich with malice. Where's the famous Weasley family rat? Buried in the backyard, Ron said coldly. Ah, how sad. Pa, ah, uh, Mr. Bronze, I should mention that the Weasley family is widely agreed to have the best pet story ever. Want to tell it, Weasley? Ron's face contorted. You wouldn't think it was funny if it happened to your family. Oh, Draco purred. But it wouldn't ever happen to the Malfoys. Ron's hands clenched into fists. That's enough, Harry said, putting as much quiet authority into his voice as he could manage. It was clear that whatever this was about, it was a painful memory for the red-haired kid. If Ron doesn't want to talk about it, he doesn't have to talk about it. And I'd ask that you not talk about it either. Draco turned a surprised look on Harry, and Ron nodded. That's right, Harry. I mean, Mr. Bronze. You see what kind of person he is? Now tell him to go away. Harry counted to ten inside his head, which for him was a very quick one of the five, six, seven, nine, ten. An odd habit left over from the age of five when his mother had first instructed him to do it. And Harry had reasoned that his way was faster and ought to be just as effective. I'm not telling him to go away. He's welcome to talk to me if he wants. Well, I don't intend to hang around with anyone who hangs around with Draco Malfoy, Ron announced coldly. Harry shrugged. That's up to you. I don't intend to let anyone say who I can and can't hang around with. Silently chanting, Please go away. Please go away. Ron's face went blank with surprise, like he'd actually expected that line to work. Then Ron spun around, yanked his luggage's lead, and stormed off down the platform. If you didn't like him, Draco said curiously, why didn't you just walk away? Um, his mother helped me figure out how to get to this platform from the King's Cross station, so it was kind of hard to tell him to get lost. And it's not that I hate this Ron guy. I just... just... Harry searched for words. Don't see any reason for him to exist, offered Draco. Pretty much. Anyway, Potter, if you really were raised by muggles... Draco paused here as if waiting for a denial, but Harry didn't say anything. Then you mightn't know what it's like to be famous. People want to take up all of our time. You have to learn to say no. Harry nodded, putting a thoughtful look on his face. That sounds like good advice. If you try to be nice, you just end up spending the most time with the pushiest ones. Decide who you want to spend time with and make everyone else leave. You're just getting here, Potter, so everyone's going to judge you by who they see you with. And you don't want to be seen with the likes of Ron Weasley. Harry nodded again. If you don't mind my asking, how did you recognize me? Mr. Bronze. Draco drawled. I have met you, remember. I saw someone going around with a scarf wrapped around his head, looking absolutely ridiculous. So I took a guess. Harry bowed his head, accepting the compliment. I'm terribly sorry about that, Harry said. Our first meeting, I mean. I didn't mean to embarrass you in front of Lucius. Draco waved it off while giving Harry an odd look. I just wish father could have come in while you were flattering me. Draco laughed. 
But thank you for what you said to father. If not for that, I might have had a harder time explaining. Harry swept a deeper bow. And thank you for reciprocating with what you said to Professor McGonagall. You're welcome. The one of her assistants must have sworn her closest friend to absolute secrecy, because father says there's weird rumors going around. Like you and I got in a fight or something. Ouch, Harry said, wincing. I'm really sorry. No, we're used to it. Merlin knows there's lots of rumors about the Malfoy family already. Harry nodded. I'm glad to hear you're not in trouble. Draco smirked. Father has, um, a refined sense of humor. But he does understand making friends. He understands it very well. He made me repeat that before I went to bed every night for the last month. I will make friends at Hogwarts. When I explained everything to him, and he saw that's what I was doing, he bought me an ice cream. Harry's jaw dropped. You managed to spin that into an ice cream? Draco nodded, looking every bit as smug as the feet deserved. Well, father knew what I was doing, of course. But he's the one who taught me how to do it. And if I grin the right way while I'm doing it, that makes it a father-son thing. And then he has to buy me an ice cream, or I'll give him the sort of sad look, like I think I must have disappointed him. Harry eyed Draco calculatingly, sensing the presence of another master. You've had lessons on how to manipulate people? Of course, Draco said proudly. I'm a Malfoy. Father bought me tutors. Wow, Harry said. Reading Robert Caldini's Influence, Science, and Practice probably didn't stack up very high compared to that, though it was still one heck of a book. Your dad is almost as awesome as my dad. Draco's eyebrows rose loftily. Oh, and what does your father do? He buys me books. Draco considered this. That doesn't sound very impressive. You had to be there. Anyway, I'm glad to hear all that. The way Lucius was looking at you, I thought he was going to crucify you. My father really loves me, Draco said firmly. He wouldn't ever do that. Um, Harry said. He remembered the black-robed, white-haired figure of elegance that had stormed through Madame Malkin's, wielding that beautiful, deadly, silver-handled cane. It wasn't easy to visualize him as a doting father. Don't take this the wrong way, but how do you know that? Huh? It was clear that this was a question Draco did not commonly ask himself. I ask the fundamental question of rationality. Why do you believe what you believe? What do you think you know, and how do you think you know it? What makes you think Lucius wouldn't sacrifice you the same way he'd sacrifice anything else for power? Draco shot Harry another odd look. Just what do you know about father? Um, seat on the Wizengamot, seat on the Hogwarts Board of Governors, incredibly wealthy, has the ear of Minister Fudge, has the confidence of Minister Fudge, Probably has some highly embarrassing photos of Minister Fudge. Most prominent blood purist now that the Dark Lord's gone. Former Death Eater who was found to have the Dark Mark, but got off by claiming to be under the Imperious Curse, which was ridiculously implausible and pretty much everyone knew it. Evil with a capital E and a born killer. I think that's it. Draco's eyes had narrowed to slits. 
McGonagall told you that, did she? No, she wouldn't say anything to me about Lucius afterwards, except to stay away from him. So, during the incident at the potions shop, while Professor McGonagall was busy yelling at the shopkeeper and trying to get everything under control, I grabbed one of the customers and asked them about Lucius. Draco's eyes were wide again. Did you really? Harry gave Draco a puzzled look. If I lied the first time, I'm not going to tell you the truth just because you asked twice. There was a certain pause as Draco absorbed this. Oh, you're so completely going to be in Slytherin. I'm so completely going to be in Ravenclaw, thank you very much. I only want power so I can get books. Draco giggled. Yeah, right. Anyway, to answer what you asked... Draco took a deep breath and his face turned serious. Father once missed a Wizengamot vote for me. I was on a broom and I fell off and broke a lot of ribs. It really hurt. I'd never hurt that much before and I thought I was going to die. So Father missed this really important vote because he was there by my bed at St. Mungo's holding my hand and promising me I was going to be okay. Harry glanced away uncomfortably, then, with an effort, forced himself to look back at Draco. Why are you telling me that? It seems sort of... private. Draco gave Harry a serious look. One of my tutors once said that people form close friendships by knowing private things about each other. And the reason most people don't make close friends is because they're too embarrassed to share anything really important about themselves. Draco turned his palms out invitingly. Your turn? Knowing that Draco's hopeful face had been drilled into him by months of practice did not make it any less effective, Harry observed. Actually, it did make it less effective, but unfortunately not ineffective. The same could be said of Draco's clever use of reciprocation pressure for an unsolicited gift, a technique which Harry had read about in his social psychology books. One experiment had shown that an unconditional gift of $5 was twice as effective as a conditional offer of $50 in getting people to fill out surveys. Draco had made an unsolicited gift of a confidence and now invited Harry to offer a confidence in return. And the thing was, Harry did feel pressured. Refusal, Harry was certain, would be met with a sad look of disappointment and maybe a small amount of contempt indicating that Harry had lost points. Draco, Harry said, just so you know, I recognize exactly what you're doing right now. My own books call it reciprocation, and they talk about how giving someone a straight gift of two sickles was found to be twice as effective as offering them twenty sickles and getting them to do what you want. Harry trailed off. Draco was looking sad and disappointed. It's not meant as a trick, Harry. It's a real way of becoming friends. Harry held up a hand. I didn't say I wasn't going to respond. I just need time to pick something that's private, but just as non-damaging. Let's say I wanted you to know that I can't be rushed into things. A pause to reflect could go a long way in diffusing the power of a lot of compliance techniques, once you learn to recognize them for what they were. All right. I'll wait while you come up with something. Oh, and please take off the scarf while you say it. Simple but effective. Harry couldn't help but notice how clumsy, awkward, graceless his attempt at resisting manipulation, saving face, showing off, 
had appeared compared to Draco. I need those tutors. All right, Harry said after a time. Here's mine. He glanced around and then rolled the scarf back up over his face, exposing everything but the scar. Um, it sounds like you can really rely on your father. I mean, if you talk to him seriously, he'll always listen to you and take you seriously. Draco nodded. Sometimes, Harry said and swallowed. This was surprisingly hard, but then it was meant to be. Sometimes I wish my own dad was like yours. Harry's eyes flinched away from Draco's face, more or less automatically, and then Harry forced himself to look back at Draco. Then it hit Harry what on earth he'd just said, and Harry hastily added, Not that I wish my dad was a flawless instrument of death like Lucius. I only meant taking me seriously. I understand, Draco said with a smile. There, now doesn't it feel like we're a little closer to being friends? Harry nodded. Yeah, it does, actually. Um, no offense, but I'm going to put on my disguise again. I really don't want to deal with... I understand. Harry rolled the scarf back down over his face. My father takes all his friends seriously. That's why he has lots of friends. You should meet him. I'll think about it, Harry said in a neutral voice. He shook his head in wonder. So you really are his one weak point. Huh. Now Draco was giving Harry a really odd look. You want to go get something to drink and find somewhere to sit down? Harry realized he had been standing in one place for too long and stretched himself, trying to crick his back. Sure. The platform was starting to fill up now, but there was still a quieter area on the far side away from the red steam engine. Along the way, they passed a stall containing a bald, bearded man offering newspapers and comic books and stacked neon green cans. The stallholder was, in fact, leaning back and drinking out of one of the neon green cans at the exact point when he spotted the refined and elegant Draco Malfoy approaching along with a mysterious boy looking incredibly stupid with a scarf tied over his face, causing the stallholder to experience a sudden coughing fit in mid-drink and dribble a large amount of the neon green liquid onto his beard. Excuse me, Harry said, but what is that stuff exactly? Committee said the stallholder. If you drink it, something surprising is bound to happen which makes you spill it on yourself or someone else. But it's charmed to vanish just a few seconds later. Indeed, the stain on his beard was already disappearing. How droll, said Draco. How very, very droll. Come, Mr. Bronze, let's go find another... Hold on, Harry said. Oh, come on, that's just... Just juvenile. No, I'm sorry, Draco. I have to investigate this. What happens if I drink comma tea while doing my best to keep the conversation completely serious? The stallholder smiled mysteriously. Who knows? A friend walks by in a frock costume? Something unexpected is bound to happen. No, I'm sorry. I just don't believe it. That violates my much-abused suspension of disbelief on so many levels, I don't even have the language to describe it. There is just no way a bloody drink can manipulate reality to produce comedy setups, or I am going to give up and retire to the Bahamas. Draco groaned. Are we really going to do this? 
You don't have to drink it, but I have to investigate. Have to. How much? Five knots the can. Five knots? You can sell reality-manipulating fizzy drinks for five knots the can? Harry reached into his pouch, said, Four sickles, four knots, and slapped them down on the counter. Two dozen cans, please. End first half of chapter seven. Thank you to the following people. Fred and George Weasley by Greg Grouse. Nikki Ebright. Petunia Evans Varis by Annie McCabe. Mr. Durian by Bram Bakker. Professor Michael Varis Evans by Rob Doss. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Thank you for listening, and come back next week for the second half of Chapter 7, Reciprocation.